You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Hi everybody and welcome back to Who Dead What Now, the history podcast that is not your history class with me, exasperated host, Katie Charlwood, buffalo wine connoisseur and reader of books. So it's been a week, it's been a week, Uh, it's been two weeks actually since you... Since you heard from me, I want to apologize. I want to apologize. Uh, I it's been a hectic week. I was, we got called back to work suddenly because I'm now essential. Woo! And um, I also have an esophageal tear, which is very unpleasant to be blunt. But uh, it means I'm now currently on the picky toddler diet, you know, which is generally a lot of beige and things shaped like animals. Honestly, though, I have never been so happy to see chicken nuggies in my life. Like, chicken nuggies make the pain go away. The emotional pain. Physical pain very much still there, but the emotional pain. I can't even have grapes. Like, it's so annoying. But it's fine. And uh, I had to deal with some, like, harassment and stuff on TikTok. But sometimes I think how much easier it would stop and just stand down and just ignore. And then I think to myself, why should I? Why should I? You know, why should I be the one to back down and be silenced? Because if I don't stand up to the bully, doesn't that mean the bully wins? And and generally when I deal with people, like, for the most part, (laughs) I'm not perfect. Because for the most part, I'll turn around and, and I'll try and be like, this is what you did, this is why it's wrong. Please take a step back and reevaluate this. And other times I'm like, other times I uh, I don't have the patience for it. And I'm like, <laughs> go choke on a bag of dicks. So the news, the news has been a thing. And I tend to not talk about modern stuff too much. But um, Prince Philip has died. Oh, the royal family have news. And I'm like, ha <laughs> ha, um, Prince Philip's dead. The Queen has announced that her husband is dead. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm standing the next mom going, oh. Is it weird that I'm like, compared to Margaret Thatcher, I see him as the lesser evil? <sighs> and I know what you're thinking. Stop that jibber jabber and fact me. And so I shall fact you. But first, we've got to get our source on. So these sources, um, they're either, um, if I couldn't get it on Kindle or um, online, it wasn't happening. So... We have The Duke, 100 Chapters in the Life of Prince Philip by Ian Lloyd, and Young Prince Philip, The 
true story of his turbulent early life by Philip Eat. And then, and My Husband and I, The Inside Story of the Royal Marriage by Ingrid Seward. And then everything else is biography.com, history.com, britannica.com. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's where we got all our information. So let's start at the beginning. Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark was born on Corfu, the Greek island, on the 10th of June 1921. He is the youngest child and only son of Prince Andrew of Greece and Denmark and Princess Alice of Battenberg. So yeah, he's basically a prince of both Greece and Denmark and he's in the line of succession for both thrones. So he has four older sisters, Margarita, Theodora, Cecily, who's his favourite and he's closest to, and then Sophie. So he gets baptised in the Greek Orthodox Church in St George's Church or the Old Fortress in Corfu. So not long after Philip's born, his grandfather, Louis Mountbatten, he had become a naturalised British subject who had a career in the Royal Navy and had renounced all of his like titles during the First World War. Because like there was like a big anti-German sort of um, sentiment in Britain after the First World War. I'm sure you can guess why. So anyway, the Greco-Turkish War is is going on and effectively uh, Greece Greece basically blames King Constantine I for the defeat and he's forced to abdicate. So the Greek Revolution is declared and the Greek army and navy, they basically, there's a coup. So Constantine, he's sailed for Sicily and he's like, I'm never going back, it's fine. So a bunch of politicians and a general, there's this thing called the Trial of the Six. And there's a trial, they get executed, it's a thing. And as far as they're aware, Prince Andrew, um, his life's going to be in danger. And that Princess Alice is in danger and all the kids are in danger. So Prince Andrew and his family, they're effectively banished by the military government. They're banished from Greece. So they flee on the HMS Calypso, which is like this British Navy vessel. And Philip is effectively smuggled out in an orange crate. So it's just a box for fruit, but it's an orange crate. So they get the fuck out of Dodge and they head to France. So they end up staying in this house in St. Cloud because his aunt, Princess George of Greece and Denmark, she's, she's fairly rich. Philip never actually learns to speak Greek. He understands it a bit, but um, he generally, but he spoke a variety of English, French and German but he really thought of himself more as Danish. His parents divorce. Um, Princess Alice, she gets diagnosed with schizophrenia and is placed in a fucking asylum. His dad fucks off to Monte Carlo and, and sets up there. Um, four of his sisters, they marry German princes and move to Germany. And he basically gets sent around from pillar to post. So he goes to like schools in Paris in England, and Germany. Like, he ends up in the one in Germany because his brother-in-law owns it. Um, and so they don't have to, like, pay fees. Eventually, he gets sent to Gordonstown School in Scotland, which was founded by Kurt Hahn, who was Jewish, and he was um, basically fleeing persecution and with the rise of Nazism in Germany. In 1937, when Philip's, like, 16 his sister Cecily, his favourite sister, um, her and her husband George Donatus and her two sons Ludwig and Alexander, her mother-in-law and governess, uh, a famous glider pilot, her mother-in-law um, and then like three crew 
and also um, Cecily was pregnant at the time, uh, she was very far under pregnancy and she actually gives birth on this flight, they're supposed to be heading to, um, they're flying from Munich to London for a royal wedding of some kind. Uh, there's bad weather, they have to divert, they head off this chimney and the plane crashes and everybody dies. So in 1939, Philip leaves Gordonstown. Gordonstown, I should say, actually, life at Gordonstown inspire him when it comes to the Duke of Edinburgh Awards that we're going to talk about in a wee minute. So, so Philip, he basically completes a term as a cadet at the Royal Naval College in Dartmouth. And while he's there, his uncle gets him to escort the princesses Elizabeth and Margaret during a royal visit. Because King George VI and Queen Elizabeth are there. And Elizabeth, she's like... Because apparently Philip, quote-unquote, looks like a Viking. And she's 13 years old and her hormones are starting to come about. And she's like... Philip and Elizabeth are third cousins through Queen Victoria. And they're second cousins once removed through King Christian IX of Denmark. So Elizabeth is absolutely smitten and she starts writing to him when she's 13 and he's 18 at this point. So they start writing, um, like a lot of the time I see people saying that they started courting when she was 13, but that's, no, that wouldn't have been allowed by any sort of stretch of the imagination. And um, so they start writing to one another anyway. And, you know, he finishes his first term at Dartmouth and he moves back to Greece. He lives with his mum for a month in the middle of, like, in, in sort of mid-1939. Um, and this is after him, like, barely speaking to his mother since she was committed to an asylum. So while he's with his mum, his first cousin, King George II of Greece, is like, Hey, buddy, um, I think maybe you should continue and go back to the Royal Navy. And, you know, because here's the thing, Philip... Compare, even though he had a title, he had no money. He had nothing. He was completely, like, done. So, like, it's weird. I mean, I'm not going to lie that it's weird at corresponding, writing letters to a 13-year-old when you're 18. Kind of creepy. But, and, I mean, his uncle was pushing him into it, but that doesn't change the fact that it is, you know, a bit creepy. Okay, so people keep bringing up the fact that their cousins, like their third cousins, um on one side and then second cousins once removed on the other and it's like yeah because they're royalty in europe and at that point anybody prominent would have been married to somebody prominent so 1939 hits uh later on 1939 and philip so basically during his time in the war he ends up becoming uh first lieutenant i think it's like a second lieutenant some kind of lieutenant like, he saves, like, his crew from a bomber ship. He gets uh, the Greek cross. He's mentioned in dispatches, you know, for his bravery and all this kind of shit. And all in all, as a Navy man, as a military man, like, he basically, he's doing, you know, he's doing the job. He's being that thing. And one thing we seem to forget about him being in the Navy is the fact that he kind of had to because he had nothing else. He had no money. He barely had a title. By giving himself a career, he would be able to do something and not have to rely on rich relatives giving him money and shit. Like, he's mainly in, you know, sailing in the Pacific. He's there when Japan signs, like, the peace treaty. And during all this time, he's writing letters to Princess Elizabeth, but what... And you got to remember, during those periods, a, a royal engagement, any kind of engagement, really, at the time, 
like would be short. A long engagement was not a thing anybody had. Like engagements were expected to be short and then you would get married. 1946 comes along and Philip is, he's, he's basically doing teaching stuff because, you know, the war's over. And he starts showing up at a lot of these events. He's generally escorting Elizabeth. He's doing the courting shenanigans. And he asks King George for Elizabeth's hand in marriage. King George is like, um, I want to wait until after her 21st birthday to announce it. And he's like, um, I guess. So, and that's when you really start seeing him show up more. And he has to go around and he's at all of these fancy events with the aristocracy. And unlike a lot of the British aristocracy, he's fucking poor. Like he's poor, poor. He's got no money, no mullah, none of that good stuff. So Philip's hanging around with the aristocracy and shit and it's a very different circle to what he's in because he's a, you know, he's a navy man and he's also poor as fuck. So, like, he's very much looked down upon. He doesn't have the social airs and graces that one would expect someone to have. Yeah, so they celebrate her 21st birthday, then they announce the engagement. In 1947, they announce their engagement and then they get married. In order for them to get married, he has to renounce the Greek and Danish titles. So, like, he's no longer Prince Philip. He's no longer a prince, he has to remove. And he has no titles. He, um, so he does this, he becomes a naturalised British subject and then he takes the anglicised version of his mother's maiden name. So Battenberg becomes Mountbatten. But like the day before the wedding, King George, he's like, I'm going to make you the Duke of Edinburgh, which I think only two people had ever had before. So while they're married, because she's still a princess, like on her own, she's, she would be referred to as Princess Elizabeth. But when they were uh, treated as a couple, they would be referred to the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh because patriarchy even though she has a higher peerage than him so they have two kids um they have charles and anne they're living in clarence house and he gets like a commander position of the hms magpie you know and he continues to have his sort of navy his naval career as long as you know king george is still alive so bish bash bosh so king george he's got stomach cancer he's getting sicker and sicker and sicker and as such when like the head royal um is unable to do like so many duties so then the, the senior royals have to then take on those roles, which would be like, now that she's 21, it would be Princess Elizabeth. Um, so they end up doing like a tour of Canada and they're doing a tour of like the Commonwealth. So they end up in Kenya and it's in Kenya where they are informed that King George is dead. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the US, more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. And this changes both of their lives because up until up until his illness took hold, they had as much of a normal life as anyone in their position could have. They're doing the tour of the Commonwealth and they end up in, in Kenya and he is the one who's told the news regarding King George's death and now he is the one who has to tell his wife that not only has her father died but she is now Queen of England and not only does he have to deal with the fact that his wife is grieving but he now has to be aware that anything that was his own is now gone. He is now a subject of the crown one way or the other. If you take into consideration the context of the time and the sociological sort of framework of the era, not only is he a man, he has to be subservient to his wife 
in an official capacity. But he also had like a sense of duty. So it's reported that basically Philip's standing there and he looks like his world is caving in. He's crushed. You can like, not often do you see emotion on that man's face, but apparently it was very apparent at the time. And they basically fly straight back to England. And Elizabeth, her coronation is held off for like a, a year or six months. Like there, there's a delay. So the discussion then happens. Like King George is barely, the body's probably still warm at this point, And people are having an argument over the name of the house. Like, what name will this royal household take? And um, obviously the Mountbatten's are like, House of Mountbatten, like, uh uh-huh. And, you know, Philip's suggestion is, you know, the House of Edinburgh. Because why not name it after the Dukedom? They've been known as the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh. Uh, queen Mary, um, the Dowager Queen, she hears about this and she's like, no, <gasps> fuck this for a game of soldiers. I'm gonna go chat to Winston fucking Churchill, the baked ham of a man. And he advises Elizabeth that. This shouldn't happen. So Philip gets fucking mad because all of this happens and it means that he is the only man in the country whose children do not have his surname. Um, what they do is, but they do come to this sort of agreement that the names Mountbatten Windsor will be used for any male descendants who do not have a peerage or titles of like prince, princess, whatever. Or type who don't have like the title of like, who are not in like the direct line of succession. Um, So technically... I think Harry would probably be known as Mountbatten Windsor now, I think. So like when they would go to school and stuff, the princes, like they would use the name Mountbatten Windsor. Anyhow, Philip basically pulls a Prince Albert, right? He's looking around and he's like, eh, what's going on here? Like he's seen revolutions happen. He's lost so many parts of his family because like he made a comment before about why he he didn't like the Russians because they killed half his fucking family. And um, yeah, okay. Um... And, you know, but like, yeah, so like, you know, he's very aware of revolutions. He's very aware of what it can be like to be banished from your country and the importance of a dutiful monarchy. Like, that's his perspective. And he gets put in charge of the coronation. So he's like the head of the coronation committee. And he's like, listen, we need to bring, like, TVs are in households. Make this an event. We want people to see the queen. We want them to see you. Like, Philip is all about reforming the monarchy because he sees what happens when you don't. And, like, it was his idea to have the cameras in the Queen's coronation. And him and the Queen Mother, they used to get into some spats. Which shouldn't be surprising because the Queen Mother was the fucking worst. They always portrayed her, I think, because of, um, because of, like, TV shows like Spitting Image, which was, like, a show about puppets at the time, um, in the 90s. They would portray the Queen Mother as a sort of lovely old Yorkshire lady, who, um, but in fact, she was actually, um, an absolute gobshe and orchestrated things. Anyway, not the point. Not the point. So the Queen gets coronated, and so Liz, she decides to, um, give Philip a title. He becomes Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. So now he's a prince. Basically gives him precedence when it comes to, you know, precedence of like everything except in parliament where he's second to, um, basically what she says is he's the top man in the country and no one is above him except in parliament when it comes to the Prince of Wales. So Philip was really inspired by his time at Gordonstown and he felt like this was the making of and that that helped him in whatever way. He felt like it bettered him as a person. And as such... He used the core, the fundamental concepts of Gordonstown by Karl Hahn to 
create the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. So basically, in 1956, um, the Duke of Edinburgh Award, it's created and it's for boys initially, um, between the ages of 15 and 18. And, and it was designed for boys who weren't really interested in joining any of the other sort of youth movements in Britain at the time. So like the Scouts or anything like that. The whole point of it was like, you didn't have to join an organisation. You didn't have to wear a uniform. You know, you could just be involved. And what was it? In the first year, 7,000 boys had enrolled in the scheme. So in 1958, girls were able to join the programme too. But um, the programme was different for girls than it was for boys. But then, um, and the age range was also from 14 to 20. But then in 1969, like a decade later, the, the programme was basically changed to involve young people from the ages of 14 to 21 and it was like a single program so it wasn't like a boy section and a girl section it was all one thing so basically there's a bunch of award programs and it's stuff like like so there's objectives in all of these like different areas so there's like a physical one so you have to improve in like the area of sport or dance or some kind of fitness skills which is practical and social skills and personal interests volunteering so you're basically you know volunteering at services that um you know, for individuals or the community, and then an expedition. So planning, training for, and completing an adventurous journey in the UK or abroad. Now, um, this gold level comes in, and basically the participants have to do this, um, like, fifth residential section. Um, so they have to, like, stay and work away from home for five days doing this, like, shared activity. So, yeah, like, the three levels, um, bronze, silver, and gold, so, like, three to six months, six to nine months, 12 to 18 months, respectively. So this was mainly for mainland UK. And then, so if you were in Northern Ireland and you were involved, you had the option of getting the Gashka cert or the Duke of Edinburgh cert. Like, it's up to you. And then in a bunch of other countries, there's a bunch of, like, organisations that are either based on or supported by um, the Duke of Edinburgh Award, and it becomes a big thing. And and I actually almost participated in the Duke of Edinburgh Awards um, when I was in college. But decided against it because I was like, I don't know what physical activity I'm going to do because I've got no physical skills. <laughs> I've got scoliosis and other shit. So, so yeah, after um, Elizabeth, you know, ascends to the throne, Prince Philip, his naval career technically has to end, but he's still involved in the armed forces. Like, um, he was made Admiral of the Sea Cadet Corps. Um, he was an Air Commodore-in-Chief for the Air Training Corps and a Colonel-in-Chief at the Army Cadet Force. And then in 53, he becomes the Admiral of the Fleet, Marshal of the Royal Air Force and Field Marshal. So over the years, he, you know, he does the thing. He accompanies Elizabeth on all these state visits, openings of Parliament, and becomes a president and patron of, like, 800 organisations and charities. And him being, like, a physical person like so yeah most of his stuff was you know related to sport and welfare of young people so in 1961 prince philip makes history by being the first member of the royal family to be interviewed on the television which went um probably better than could be expected of philip to be honest so, like he was being interviewed to do with um the commonwealth technical training week so he becomes like the chancellor of like a bunch of universities um edinburgh not surprised there Cambridge, Wales and Salford. And in 1961, Philip actually becomes the first president of the World Wildlife Fund UK. And that's up until 1982. And he also becomes the international president of the WWF from 81 to 96. So like, during the time, so Philip, he gets asked at one point in the 70s, you know, whether he's like the Prince Albert to Victoria, like is he, if he's the real power behind the throne. And he's like... Um, no. 
So basically, these reports come over every now and again about the about the Duke of Edinburgh and the Queen like drifting apart, um, and like behind closed doors, when it comes to personal matters, he was effectively the man of the house. But when it came to matters of state and official things like that, she was the boss. The fact that they were able to reconcile that as a couple. So yeah, him being the boss behind the doors is like the reason that Prince Charles ended up being sent to Gordonstown instead of something a bit closer to home, a bit more befitting someone of um, Charles's temperament. He gets sent to Gordonstown because that's what Philip wants. So during this long, long marriage, there was this whole thing of like dead... Prince Philip cheat on the Queen. And it's like, for the most part, uh, no. If he did, it was with one person. Because we only have evidence for one. Basically, um, the actress Pat Kirkwood, whose legs were once called the eighth wonder of the world. So they met on at least seven occasions. And she always like denied there was any kind of relationship between them. But Kirkwood tells a journalist, <clears throat> and I quote... A lady is not normally expected to fend her honour. So she says that Prince Philip comes uninvited into her dressing room. The Duchess of Abercorn had a <clears throat> quote-unquote passionate friendship with the Duke, but there's no real evidence saying that he was unfaithful. And sometimes I have to wonder, like, would he be so stupid as to do that, though? Because if you're married to the Queen, I feel like it would be pretty easy to be like, look at motherfucker here, he's cheated on the Queen. So, um... Oh yeah, he also like so he supports things like BAFTA, the International Equestrian Federation, which isn't surprising because, you know, Princess Anne of the British Heart Foundation, so on and so forth. So reforming, reforming, that's right, that's where we are. The Christmas message, which the monarch always does, it was Philip's idea to have it be televised. Because again, the image of the Queen seeing the Queen having that message go into the homes of people at Christmas time, which was very important to them, just made a lot more sense. So that's what they do. They do that. It makes perfect sense. It was also his idea for that really awful, awful documentary, They Cover It in the Crown. It is so bad that it was never <laughs> repeated. It just, like, the concept, I think, was a good idea, but the follow-through was just fucking atrocious. Like, and it wasn't just so... Yeah, he's doing all these reforms... Because he's looking around at stuff and he's like, why are you doing it this way? Like, like footman's powdered wigs. He's like, um, why? What is the point of this? So basically there's this whole thing about um, how the royals get paid. So basically the royals get an allowance which has to go towards their official duties. Anything they don't use that doesn't go towards that gets taxed. So in general it gets used because it pays like staff and everything else and... Philip, for being the gruff arsehole that he is, he is actually pretty um, welcoming when it comes to outsiders with regards to the royal family because he was one himself. So while King George is still alive, so before they, you know, they're taking on a few more royal duties and Princess Margaret, she's starting this sort of affair with Townsend, who's this for King George's private secretary or whatever it is. And, um, and they start having this affair. But Townsend is divorced. Like, there's all this stuff about, like, Philip intervening, and he didn't because he didn't see the point of intervening in anyone's relationships. He thought, I'm just going to take a step back. But when it comes to Margaret and Townsend, the reason that their relationship didn't blossom was because because he was divorced, she could not marry him. Like, that's the royal family, that was their whole thing. So Margaret was basically given a choice. The choice was either marry him, you can marry him, but you lose all of your titles. You give up 
your line of succession, you give up everything to do with the monarchy, you, you become probably as common as an ex-royal could be, you know what I mean? But she chose the monarchy. Anywho. Now we get to Charles and Diana. So he's the one who basically tells Charles to shit or get off the pot when it comes to Diana. He's like, either marry the girl or step away. Diana is put in place for Charles because she is a nice Protestant virgin and they want them to get married. So they get married, yada yada yada, when they both start having affairs and doing all that kind of stuff. Philip tries to like mend the rift. He's like, guys, come on, you're all acting the dick. Um, and they're like, and um, you know, he's trying to get them to reconcile. It doesn't fucking work. And to the point where he actually writes to Diana going, I'm really disappointed in you both. And frankly, you need, and he's like, you need to sort of look at this from each other's point of view, so on and so forth. Needless to say, this does not have the desired effect. And they get divorced and he's like, well, well, fuck it. Basically, a year after the divorce is finalised, here's the thing. When Diana dies, they're, they're all in Balmoral at the time that Diana dies in 97. And the boys want to go to church. So, you know, Philip and Liz, they take them to church. They basically keep the boys hidden in Balmoral and they don't make public appearances because these children have just lost their mother and they don't want them being hounded by the fucking tabloids. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Just fair enough. This one, this one fucking bugs me so much. So the boys are unsure on whether or not they want to walk behind the coffin at Diana's funeral. And basically her brother, Diana's brother, Earl Spencer, he told, you know, Prince Philip that the boys really want to do it, but they're just scared of doing it alone, blah, 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 blah. You know, but they really want to do it. He was he was like, they really want to, but they're really scared about it. And Philip's like, you know, I, I you know, I think you'll regret it if you're not involved. And so Philip goes to his grandchildren and says, I'll walk. You can walk with me. Initially, Philip didn't want them to fucking walk behind the coffin. He was like, no, they shouldn't have to be put on a public spectacle like this in this fashion because they're fucking children. And um, and he ends up having to... And he ends up being the turning point in them doing a thing he didn't want them to do. I'm like, I don't like Philip at the most, you know, for the most part. So Philip is fucking pissed that when he finds out that they didn't want to do it at all and that this was all orchestrated by fucking Spencer, but whatever. So another thing that happens, because technically he's like like the head of the Freemasons or whatever. So like a lot of people are convinced that Prince Philip ordered a hit out on Diana, which honestly doesn't make sense. And like, I'm a true crime obsessive. 
and I have looked and delved into this because I was alive when this happened and I've been obsessed with the fact and honestly it's just a horrific accident and if you're looking for somebody to blame for Diana's death blame the fucking paparazzi it was them Prince Philip may be a dick 98% of the time but he didn't kill her so by 2009, Philip, he becomes the, he becomes the longest serving British royal consort. And, and he gets interviewed when he's 79 years old and he says he couldn't imagine anything worse than being a centenarian. He didn't want to live to be 100 because bits of him were falling off already. So during the Queen's Golden Jubilee, you know, he's supposed to start like reducing his royal duties and he's like, he's like, by the time he's 90, they're like, yeah, I'm going to start slowing down on these royal duties. I'm going to do less of them. And um, like every year they waited for him to do less. And like on his 90th birthday, as a wedding gift, the Queen gives him the title of Lord High Admiral. And then later on in the year, he ends up, he, he suffers from chest pains. He has to get a stent in his heart. He has to get a stent in and go through coronary and coronary angioplasty. Um, during the Queen's Diamond Jubilee on in 2012, you know, they're like in the middle of a celebration. He has to get taken to hospital. Turns out he's got a bladder infection. Has to go through a quote unquote minor procedure and finally gets out. Um, so he basically, so he misses. Uh, this happens at this point. You know, at this point, I'm convinced he's just being held together by Jim Henson animatronics. Um, <laughs> by 2017, so he just misses public appearances left and right. Like he misses his. So like in 2017, he misses the state opening of Parliament, Royal Ascot, so on and so forth. And in 20, and as such, in 2017, at the age of 96, he decides to retire from royal duties. And his last solo public engagement is meeting the Royal Marines. Since 1952, he had completed 22,219 solo engagements. So like, you know, there's other stuff he had to do, like when he has to be like with the Queen. Oh, yeah, in 2017 as well. They celebrate their 70th wedding anniversary. 2018, he ends up having a hip replacement um, in April. And then in May, he attends the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And in October, he goes to the wedding of Princess Eugenie and Jack Brooksbank. He basically wakes up and sees how he feels and decides whether or not he's going to go to an engagement that day. You know, go to an event or not. Which is fair enough for somebody who's like, who's slowly turning into the crypt keeper. Um, so 2019, 17th of January. This bugs me so fucking much, but as someone who deals with, how do I put this? I don't know if you've ever met somebody who's like infirm, is, is aging and is losing the ability to do things. And sometimes they are so determined to continue to do the things that they used to do, that they're just going to keep doing it regardless of whether they hurt themselves or anybody else. So I understand the concept. I'm still pissed about it. 17th of January 2019, 97-year-old Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, is near Sandringham Estate and he is involved in a car crash. Unharmed, except for a bit of bleeding. And the driver and the passenger of the other car involved in the incident were taken to hospital. So the passenger in the car, she breaks her wrist. But thankfully, the driver and the driver's nine-month-old baby were fine. And here's the thing, the crash was absolutely Philip's fault. Like, he does this, like, public apology thing. Three weeks later, he ends up voluntarily surrendering his driving license which he fucking should there was no reason for a 97 year old man to be behind the wheel of a car so he was seen behind the wheel of a car like on his own estates after that so 2019 philip ends up in hospital again 
with a quote-unquote pre-existing condition. He ends up, and Prince Philip and the Queen, they end up isolating in Windsor Castle um, during the, the co- like at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in July, he steps down as the Colonel-in-Chief of the Rifles, and the Duchess of Cornwall, she takes up the spot. January 21, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip get vaccinated. I'm going to say good for them. I'm going to say good for them for getting vaccinated. They're technically in the high-risk group anyway, so I'm not that... So, you know what I mean? But also, I think it was very important them to show that they were doing it. So in February, Philip gets uh, gets taken into hospital again as a precautionary measure. In March, he's back in hospital again. And on the 16th of March, he's discharged. Now, at this point, I am convinced that the reason he was discharged from hospital was because they knew he was dying. And I think the whole purpose was to create a hospice-like scenario. Um, so palliative care for him for the end of his life. So Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, he dies on the 9th of April 2021 at the age of 99, two months before his 100th birthday. And the official announcement is that he has died peacefully in his sleep. Let's talk about some of the shit Philip has said over the years. Oh, how do I put this? Um, The term inappropriate vibe really should have been described for Philip because he had a habit of just putting his foot in his mouth wherever he went. I mean, the man did not give a fuck, but yeah. At a Women's Institute thing in Scotland, he says that British women can't cook. He says to a Scottish driving instructor in 1999, how do you keep the natives off the booze long enough to pass the test? He really didn't like singers very much. Like he didn't like Tom Jones or Madonna. Like he was like, or Elton John. He, um... Um, when he looks at the Duke and Duchess of York when they get a house in 86, his response is, it looks like a tart's bedroom. <laughs> the thing is as well, like, so much of what Philip said and does, and, like, and this is often commented as, like, gaffes. They call it a gaff, Like, oh, Prince Philip's gaffes. And it's like, so, like, what I don't understand is, like, why the, you've lived long enough, you can move with time and with history, and you can, like, follow it. It just feels like he got to a certain point and was like, no, this is enough. This is enough. I don't need to do any more. For example, when, so let's let's get into um <coughs> the complicated legacy of Prince Philip. He's visiting Nigeria in 2003 and there's the royal, so the Duke of Edinburgh and the Queen. They meet the president who's wearing Nigeria's national dress. And he says to him, you look like you're ready for bed. When visiting British students in China, he says to one student, he says to students that if they stay there much longer, they're going to become slitty-eyed. To a man, who, to a British man who trekked the Kokoda track in Papua New Guinea, asks him, oh, so you managed not to get eaten then? In 1999, he asks the black politician, Lord Taylor of Warwick, what exotic part of the world he came from. He asked, in 2002, he asked an Australian indigenous businessman if they still threw spears at each other. In 2009, when he met US President Barack Obama, who was describing his day meeting Chinese leaders, Russians, British politicians, Philip asks if he could tell the difference between them. Like, part of me is like, okay, well, he's an old dude. He is what we would call a man of a certain generation. He's also from the Navy, and that's a very specific way to be. Like, I know friends who swear like sailors, and 
He sounds like the kind of guy who would have been funny up until the 80s, you know what I mean? And then would have stopped being funny. I just find it very interesting because, like, with some comments you can understand, like, in the 1950s, you could blame this on ignorance. But when the world is evolving and you are a, a symbol of an institution and you are a representative of the monarchy, of the very crown that you swore to protect, maybe you should take a step back and be less of a fucking dick. So there we go. There's Prince Philip for you. So he may have had a sense of honour and a sense of duty and supported his wife through, like, the biggest career one could have, you could argue, but also was a huge fucking racist who never learned to shut his mouth. It always feels like, Prince Philip always feels like two steps forward and one step back, like, no matter what he did. Yeah, and it's a complicated legacy, and he's a symbol for an institution which I'm not entirely sure should still exist. So, what did we learn today? All people die. Yeah, yeah. And that the BBC really, really knows how to beat a dead horse. Was there, wasn't there like 24 hours of footage? Like, mate, it's fine. We, we all know what a documentary is. It's good. I just want to say thank you to the very first producer of the show, the lovely Helly from Niagara Falls, who's my top patron on Patreon and the very first producer of the show. Thou art a precious, thunder-darting sprite. If you want to be a producer and get a shout-out at the end of the show, you can, of course, by going on to patreon.com slash now and by supporting the show that way. And that's uh, Patreon is not the only way you can show your support. You can always follow on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, that's Who Did What Now Pod, and Twitter is Who Did What Now PD, because there aren't enough characters. But anyway. Oh, review. Oh, recommendations. Reading. I am, well, I had to take a break from reading, but I'm currently reading um, Agent Fifi and the Wartime Honey Trap Spies. Listening, I've been, I started listening to My Favourite Murder again. I hadn't listened to like a good few, but I was, I was at I was doing some stuff and I'm back at work now. So I was doing some stuff and I was listening to them because that's fun. I like to listen to them. I find them fun and because I, I like my true crime to have a bit of comedy in it. Um, Just, just as a, as a person. Falcon Winter Soldier every week. Every week it knocks it out of the park, man. Wow, like seriously, it's 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 astounding. It's very strange though because WandaVision always felt like 15 minutes and each episode of of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier like feels like a full movie. I I, I what Marvel sorcery is this, but um I'm digging it. Like anyway, and I am going to bid you all farewell. And so I'm going to say adios au revoir of Widazen, my friends. Bye-bye. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.